your Bible, if you have one, and turn it to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter number 7 is where we're going to be today. Mark chapter number 7. Thought about skipping Mark chapter 7, but uh, this is an important chapter though, isn't it? Mark chapter number 7. Uh, I was just kidding about skipping it, um, but uh, this is a little more, more on the controversial side of things um, within Christianity, and uh, we're going to try to deal with some of that today. Mark chapter number 7, and if you're able to physically stand, if you join me in standing for the reading of God's Word, and we're going to read just verses 1 through 6, we'll make our way, I think, all the way down through verse 23 today. Uh, but uh, Mark chapter number one or seven verses one through six is just what we're going to read right now, and then through the message we'll make our way down through verse number twenty-three. Uh, the word of God says this in verse one: Then came together unto him the Pharisees and certain of the scribes which came from Jerusalem, and when they saw, <clears throat> excuse me, when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled that is to say, with unwashen hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands oft, eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not. And many other things there be which they have received to hold, as the washing of cups and pots, brazen vessels, and of tables." Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashen hands? He answered and said unto them, Well hath Isaiah, or Isaiah, prophesied of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the service thus far. Thank you for the song we just heard, the fact that you're in the midst of the trials and difficulties of our life, and that you're there, and we can trust you. But Lord, now as we turn our attention to your word, I pray that, uh, Lord, you would use this message to help us to uh, understand some truth uh, that you were trying to convey here to these Pharisees and to uh, the disciples that were around I pray, Lord, that uh, you'd give us wisdom today and to help us to not just be good hearers of the word, but then help us to be good doers of the word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So here we have some, some Pharisees and some scribes who were all consumed with hand washing. Now, I would like to say for the record, in my personal opinion, hand washing is a good thing. <laughs> uh, I wash my hands often. Uh, my pastor in California used to say after church, uh, he would, uh, we go to a restaurant, he would always say, hey, I'm going to slip to the restroom and, and wash the fellowship off of my hands after he got done shaking hands with everybody. Uh, every time in, in my home right now uh, that I touch our dog, especially, especially uh, when her nose her wet nose or her tongue touches my hands, I immediately go wash my hands. I just, just something about that. I mean, I, I've seen what that tongue has touched, and I'm like, yeah, I'm washing my hands right now. Okay, I don't know if that's appropriate to say from the pulpit, but I just did. Please forgive me. Well, during the last couple years uh, here in America and really around the world, we've heard a lot about hand washing. I mean, how many of you before... Before COVID, were like you, you wash your hands like all the time. How many of you were like that? How many were not like that and are brave enough to raise your hands? Okay. <laughs> all right. Well, after COVID, of course, you know, when we were hearing about, please wear a mask, please wash your hands, like constantly, constantly, constantly. Um, and uh, well, like anything, though, like I said, washing hands is a good and healthy practice. But like anything, some people can make too much of it, and such was the case of the Pharisees and the scribes here in Mark chapter number 7. So today we're going to look at, at those Pharisees and scribes who had clean hands, but their hearts were dirty. 
And uh, so let's go ahead and dive into this passage, and, and uh, hopefully uh, these things will help us to learn and, and grow in our own Christian lives. First of all, let's look at number one here this morning. The Pharisees had a critical heart. These Pharisees had a critical heart. In verse number one, it says this, Then came together unto him the Pharisees and certain of the scribes which came from Jerusalem. So if you remember from last Sunday... Uh, immediately after Jesus fed the, the, the thousands, the 5,000 men plus the women and children in Mark chapter number 6, right after that, according to the Gospel of John, the people were so impressed with Jesus doing that mighty miracle that they wanted to take him by force and make him a king. So uh, he was just like, they were just so amazed with him. They said, we've got to make him a king. He's got to be, you know, the next president uh, he, he's got to be a king. And they were going to take him by force. Jesus, as we looked at last week, excused himself and got him and his disciples out of the way. And they said, we've got to go. Well, that whole idea of him becoming king, I, I, I'm sure uh, that news spread throughout the land, all, going all the way to the capital city of Jerusalem. And uh, so Jerusalem kind of started hearing about this, and they said, we got to do something about it. we gotta, we got to stop this from happening. So they sent some Pharisees and some scribes to go ahead and check this out. And so here comes this a group of pious people, you know, with uh, so self-righteous with their own traditions. And they come to where Jesus and his disciples are. And at first they come as observers only. Because in verse number one, it says, Then came together unto him the Pharisees. Uh, they, they were just kind of coming as just casual observers. But then, then verse two, uh, things began to quickly change. Verse two, it says, When they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is to say, with unwashed hands, they found fault. So uh, they were observers, but they were observers with the intent to try to find some fault in Jesus and his followers. And they found uh, fault, sure enough. Um, they saw these disciples with unwashed hands. Now, whether they were actually completely unwashed is unknown, but I would, I would uh, some commentaries say they just didn't go through the entire ritual that uh, the tradition of the elders called for. And the tradition of the elders called for them to wash their hands all the way to their elbows. And uh, I would probably fall short of just about every time of uh, washing my hands if that was the case. These disciples, they probably washed them, uh, watched them wash their hands just real quickly so that they can get down to the business of eating. And I'm all for that. Uh, now, if these, d these Pharisees were so offended at the uh, disciples for how they ate without washing their hands, they, they probably would have been extremely offended had they attended our men and boys camp out back in June. Uh, I am sure that several of the boys, in all the hours we were there, never one time washed their hands, and they ate quite a bit. Uh, they would have been very, very disappointed. Well, at the end of verse number two, these last three words are extremely interesting here. It says, they found fault. They found fault. Now, here Jesus was there who did amazing and wondrous miracles that were completely authenticated. Here they're standing before Jesus who spoke like no man ever spoke before as someone with authority. Here Jesus was standing before them, was filled with all goodness and love, and yet these men had the audacity to find fault because his disciples ate without properly washing their hands according to their tradition. Seriously? That's all you can grasp at? That's all you can find? It's interesting that they found fault with Jesus. Uh, later on, if you fast forward to when Jesus was just hours before he was crucified on the cross of Calvary, it was Pilate who would say on multiple occasions that he said, I find no fault in him. It was the thief on the cross 
Remember, Jesus was there in the middle with two other male factors, one on either side. And as one was saying, hey, you're supposed to be Christ, why don't you come on down? And the other one said this to him. He said, hey, we indeed justly, like in other words, we're here because we deserve to be. And he said this, we receive the due rewards of our deeds, but this man pointing to Jesus hath done nothing amiss. So the testimony of Pilate, the testimony of this other thief, was that Jesus had no fault in him. The writer of Hebrews said this in chapter 4 and verse 15, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are. And then he says, yet without sin. See, Jesus was perfect. There was no fault in him. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, Paul said this, For he, God the Father, hath made him, Jesus the Son, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You see, the Lord Jesus was perfect without fault. 1 John 3 and verse 5 says this, And you know that he, Jesus, was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. So these Pharisees found fault in the one whom there is no fault in. And uh, the reason they did that is because Jesus and his disciples didn't match their extra-biblical tradition. And Mark then explains and offers an explanation to the uh, Gentile readers, which is most of us here, if not all of us, in verses three or four, three and four, explaining what these what this tradition was. Verse three says, "For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands oft or diligently, eat not like they're not supposed to eat until they wash their hands properly, holding the tradition of the elders." Notice. The, Mark doesn't say holding the scriptures. See, the tradition of the elders was different than the word of God. And that's very important to understand here. Verse number four, when they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not. I mean, they had all these different like rules that kind of got added uh, as time went on. And many other things there be which they have received to hold as the washing of cups and pots, brazen vessels and of tables. Like they had to go through all these rituals to get all these things clean before it was time to eat. I mean, just all these things that are nowhere found in the scriptures. Um, these people were more concerned with following the tradition of the elders than they were with obeying the scriptures. I read about this, and maybe you've heard this story before. A newlywed man was watching his wife as she was preparing dinner one night, and, and his wife would cut an inch off of both ends of the meat of pot roast before putting it into the oven. And when he asked why, she answered, well, that's how you're supposed to cook it. He wasn't satisfied with that answer, so he pressed further until she said, well, guess I learned it from my mom. Well, the husband then calls up his mother-in-law and asks her why she cuts a nut an inch off from each end of the pot roast. She answered, well, that's how you cook pot roast. And he pressed her a little bit more until his mother-in-law says, well, I learned it from my mom. So the man calls up his wife's grandmother and asked her the same question about why you cut an inch off of each end of the pot roast before putting it in the oven. And he still can't figure out why cutting off good meat is a requirement for cooking a pot roast. Amen on that one. This question definitely needed to be asked. She says, well, <clears throat> my mom did it that way too. Let me call her. And so she calls her elderly mother and asks her why she used to cut the ends off the pot roast before cooking it. And the great-grandmother laughs and says, well, we used to be very poor and didn't own a lot of cookware. I cut the ends off so that the meat would fit into my only pan. And, and that became a tradition. And, and these, these ladies all the way down just says, well, we have to do it because that's the right way. And that's how traditions kind of end up starting another uh, another story I, I read about many years ago, a very poor a man who 
uh, was wanting to really get close to the Lord, uh, to his particular religion. I don't know if uh, he was a believer. I, I, I doubt it. But many years ago, this, uh, this very poor man lived in a remote part of China. And every, every, every day before his time of meditation, in order to show his devotion, he put a dish of butter up on the windowsill as an offering to God since food was so scarce. And he said, you know, I, I only have this little butter. I want to show you, God, that I'm really sincere about this. Well, one day his cat came in and ate the butter. And so to remedy this, he began tying the cat to the bedpost each day before quiet time so that his butter would be safe as an offering to God. Well, this man was so respected for his piety that others ended up joining him as disciples and worshipped just as he did. And generations later, long after the man was dead, his followers still placed an offering of butter on the windowsill during their time of prayer and meditation. And many, each one, and, and many bought a cat and tied it to the bedpost, thinking that was part of the worship experience. See, tradition, that's the way kind of tradition ends up happening. And that's how many of the traditions came down to these Pharisees. Something good kind of ended up going a lot farther than it needed to. And all of a sudden, now it's the law. And now it's a definition of whether you are spiritual or not. And so they come and they find Jesus and his disciples who do not match up with the tradition of these elders that had gotten passed down over time. And so they found fault. They got him, or so they thought. And so they asked him in verse number five, they say, um, thinking that this is kind of the drop the mic question that, hey, we've got him right where we want him, the checkmate question. Verse number five, the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashing hands. Ah, we got him now. We've tripped him up. But uh, if you notice, that's verse 5, but there's a verse 6, and we come into the words of red. If you have a red-letter Bible, we get some powerful words written in red. And that comes to number 2 here. So we see the Pharisees had a critical heart, but then number two, Jesus condemned their hypocrisy. In verse number six, here's the response of our Savior. He answered and said unto them, Well hath Isaiah, or Isaiah, prophesied of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And that's a reference back to Isaiah chapter 29 in verse number 13. Jesus did not mince words. He wasn't trying to be gracious in this particular moment. Because here's what he calls them in verse number 6. He prophesied of you, and then he calls them the name hypocrites. Wow. That's a pretty powerful word. I don't think the Pharisees were shocked the Pharisees had already had some run-ins with Jesus, and it didn't go so well. Uh, but here, Jesus uh, calls them publicly hypocrites. By the way, not the only time he calls them hypocrites. In Matthew chapter 23, as Jesus preaches his most intense uh, message and sermon in Matthew chapter 23, verse 25, he says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees! And then he calls them that name again, hypocrites. For you make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. And then he says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are likened unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so also ye outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. And so here as Jesus calls them hypocrites, he tells them that, look, you're 
walking around talking about how great you are, but your heart is far from the Lord. And going back to that Matthew 23 uh, passage, um, Jesus called them hypocrites, and he said, you make clean the outside of the cup and the platter. Within they are full of extortion and excess. And many times uh, Pharisees fall into this for sure, but, but us believers can fall into the same thing where we just focus on the outward, and as long as everybody thinks I'm doing good, all is well. I have here this morning a, a, a beautiful cup. I asked my wife, can you give me the most ornate, elegant, ornate, beautiful cup? Um, I was going to pick my Raider cup, but that was, uh, anyway, no. So I have a beautiful cup here, and doesn't it look nice? Julie, would you come up here for a quick second? This is a beautiful cup. It's so pretty. But inside here, I have some creek water from right over in our property over here. And there's some mud in there, and there might be some creepy crawlies. I don't know, really small creepy crawlies. Would you like to take a sip of this? Are you, are you sure? But the outside looks so nice. Doesn't it? Are you glad I did this with your cup? <laughs> I didn't exactly tell her what I was using it for, so better to ask forgiveness than for permission, I think, in this case. But, uh, but the outside looks so nice, doesn't it? Yes, because I cleaned it for you. Well, <laughs> but, but here's the thing. But, but when, I, when I got this water out of it, it was dirty, but I cleaned that off. Yeah. Because I want to make sure that the outside is so clean. Okay? But you're not interested in having any of this. Okay. Thank you. You can be seated. I won't make you actually drink it. And I'm probably going to have to clean this now. I've just given myself some homework. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees that, look, you're so focused on the exterior but what matters most is what's on the inside. Wouldn't you rather just have a regular plastic cup, a cheapy cup that has clean water in it, than this with dirty water in it? Many of us really spend a lot of time making sure the exterior and our reputation is good. That's not bad to have a nice exterior, but what's most important is being clean on the inside. Amen. These Pharisees, boy, their hands were uber clean. But their hearts were filthy. The cleanliness of their hands did not automatically mean their heart was close to the Lord. And that's what Jesus was saying in verse number 6. He said, yes, you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. And as a result of that, in verse number 7, Jesus says, How be it in vain do they worship me? When, when, when we're just so focused on making sure our appearance and our reputation is good for others, and our heart is far from the Lord, verse number 7, he says, Our worship is in vain. How be it in vain do they worship me? Teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. See, they taught their traditions that had gotten passed down over time and, and, and blown out of proportion. They had passed those down, and, and they, they made them equal as doctrine, teaching for doctrine the commandments of men. So in other words, they actually elevated their tradition to the level of truth, and even above truth. And that is a very dangerous place to be. God's truth is the ultimate standard, and we don't need to be going above that and adding to it or taking away. There's tremendous warning in the Scriptures about doing that. And so they made the traditions that they had more important than Scripture. Now, to be clear, cleaning hands wasn't bad. I'm not saying these Pharisees shouldn't have cleaned, cleaned their hands. That's fine. Go ahead and clean your hands and sing happy birthday while you do it, you know? Isn't that what you're supposed to do? 
Or is that brushing your teeth? I don't remember now. <laughs> Obviously, I'm not the expert on personal hygiene, okay? Um, but, you know, go ahead and wash your hands. That's fine. But do not make that equal or above more important than Scripture. And that's exactly what they were doing. Verse number 8 says, They are laying aside the commandment of God. How... How can you get to that point where they're, they're laying aside the commandment of God like, oh, yeah, God's, God's word, yeah, that's, that's wonderful. But, boy, we've got the tradition of men as the washing of pots and cups and many other such like things you do. This wasn't just limited to their hand washing. He was indicting them on basically their whole system of religion. It was on all these traditions that... Maybe at one point we're, we're based on a biblical per principle, but then got blown way out of proportion, and now they're holding everybody to the same standard and more important than the Word of God. Now, according to Warren Worsby, this is what they believed. Rabbi Eliezer of the second century said, He who expounds the Scriptures... And you have to listen carefully to this. He who expounds the scriptures in opposition to, to the tradition has no share in the world to come. Basically, what this rabbi is saying is that if you take God's word and that contradicts a tradition, you have no part in heaven. You have lost your salvation. Tradition is that important, way more important than the scriptures. And he goes on to say, the Manisha, a collection of Jewish traditions in the Talmud, records, it is a greater offense to teach anything contrary to the voice of the rabbis than to contradict Scripture itself. Wow. And we get these, that there are systems of religion where that is the case today. Look, tradition does not trump truth. Truth trumps tradition. To be very clear, I want to say that again. Tradition does not trump truth. Truth trumps tradition. And verse number 9, as we continue reading through Jesus' uh, response here, as he condemns their hypocrisy, says in verse number 9, Full well ye reject the commandment of God, that ye may keep your own tradition. He, he's saying... You're throwing away the word of God in order for you to keep your tradition, and that becomes the standard. No. And then he goes in, in uh, verses 10 and 11 and 12, and he gives an example of how these people were making the word of God of none effect. And uh, verse number 10, let me go ahead and read it. He says, For Moses said, we know this is in the word of God, Honor thy father and, my, and thy mother, and whoso curseth father or mother, let him die the death. That's the word of God. But ye say, if a man say to his father or mother, it is Corban, that is to say a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, he shall be free, and ye suffer him no more to do aught for his father or his mother. Let me explain what all that means there. See, Jesus, uh, he pointed out a religious and legal loophole the Jews had created called Corban. Here's what it is. They had transgressed the fifth commandment, which has as its principle to honor thy father and mother. Children were to respect their parents and to take care of them. In the Old Testament, God said, and, uh, whoever curseth father or mother, let him die the death. Well, children could be put to death for cursing their parents. And this was such a great irritation to God that he would punish those that did it if men did not. But now these men got around the commandment of God by their tradition. Tradition taught that it was good to give to the priests when their parents came to the point in their lives that they needed to help, needed help from their children. These men claimed that they had given all they could spare to the priests. Therefore, the law released them from any obligation to their parents. And the problem with that way of thinking was that it went against the commandment of God, which should always have priority over the laws of men. And this was their sin, which Christ reminded of them of and which led, the, led him to call them hypocrites. And that's what Corbin was. It's, it's a gift. Um, ah, no, I've set this aside for the work of God. 
because that's what tradition said for me to do. And then they're kind of excused from having to take care of their parents, which is taking tradition and putting it over the Word of God. So he said in verse 13, You've made the Word of God of none effect through your tradition, which you have delivered in many such things, many such like things you do. He said, that's just one example. I can give several. I'm just picking that one, the Lord says. Jews had many more of these tedious oral laws. For instance, here's, here's an interesting one that I read. He said, if a Jewish man was carrying a pot, okay, let's say this is a pot. I'm not going to actually do this. I know what's good for me here. But he's carrying a pot and was touched by a Gentile. The pot had to be broken into pieces. And the largest piece of broken pottery couldn't be any larger than a man's big toe. Now, can't you just see a Pharisee breaking a pot after it got touched by a Gentile and, and, taking, these, and, and taking these pieces and getting his toe out and kind of making sure that they're not bigger? Oh, I need to make this one smaller. Can you imagine that? That's ridiculous. So Jesus condemns and confronts their hypocrisy. Now let's kind of take it back to you and I for a minute. Here's kind of the point of the message. And number three, let's notice we are called to hearken. Verse 14, and when he, Jesus, had called all the people unto him, and, and uh, let's, let's be part of all the people this morning and, and listen to what Jesus has to say. When he had called all the people unto him, he said unto them, Hearken unto me, every one of you, and understand. The word hearken means to listen, to lend the ear, to attend what is uttered with eagerness or curiosity. And it means to regard, to give heed to what is uttered, to observe or obey. This word hearken there is on there on purpose. He doesn't want us just to listen to what he, he wants us to apply these truths to our lives. And so we are called to hearken. So Jesus calls all the people to teach them truth. And what is the truth here? Let's keep reading in verse number 15. There is nothing from without a man that entering into him can defile him. He said, you're so concerned about the little germs that may be on, you know, when we were at the men and boys camp out, I brought that out a minute ago, you know, eating those hot dogs with unwashing hands, which many of us did. Were there germs on there? Probably a little bit. Maybe in some of the boys' cases, probably a lot of it. <laughs> but there's nothing from without a man that entering into him can defile him. For the things which come out of him, those are they that defile the man. And of course, it's a reference to the digestive system of human beings that God created in us. The things that aren't supposed to be there end up exiting us. Verse 16, Jesus says, If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was entered in the house from the people, so he made that comment in front of everybody. And then they, they go into the house. Then verse 17 says, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. And can, can you explain a little bit more of what you meant there? And then Jesus says, are you so without understanding? Also, do you not perceive that whatsoever thing from without or without entereth into man, it cannot defile him? Because it entereth not into his heart, but into the belly, and goeth out into the draught, purging all meats. Again, he kind of repeats what he says there. And then, verse 20, here's the real point. That which cometh out of the man, that defileth a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, Foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and those are the things that defile the man. Here are some thoughts here that I want to leave us with this morning. First of all, the heart of man's problem is always a problem within man's heart. The heart of man's problem is always a problem with man's heart. We cannot fix our problems with a change of action. Hey, you know, maybe I just need to go to a class, or maybe I need to be in a different environment. That's not what's going to keep me from doing the things mentioned in verse 21 and 22. That litany of things that comes out of the heart of man, how can I fix that? 
I know we need to have new politicians. We need to get a new guy in the White House. That would sure help everything. Um, we really don't need somebody new in the White House to fix all of this stuff. And we need a new heart. Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse number 9, the Bible says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who could know it? The next verse says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. There are two basic schools of thought about human goodness and evil. A humanist would say that all people are basically good at heart. But because of a lack of education or poverty or a poor environment or association with bad people, then a person gradually falls into evil. The other position is that man is basically born with a sinful nature and must be redeemed by Jesus Christ. Of course, that is the position taught, uh, taught by the Bible. Now, the bad news is, this, ladies and gentlemen, is that we're all sinners bound for a place called hell. All of us. You and me both. The good news is that Jesus died on the cross so that we could receive a spiritual heart transplant, which is what all of us need. Look, God doesn't want to patch up your old heart. He wants to give you a brand new one. God spoke through the prophet Ezekiel to show us that the sinful humanity's only hope is to get a brand new heart. God promises in Ezekiel 36, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and will give you a heart of flesh. Friend, we don't need a, to turn over a new leaf. We need new life. That's what's going to help us from uh, producing these things that defile a man uh, because they come out of our heart. The, uh, the wisest man who ever lived, Solomon, said this, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. See, uh, what what's in our heart will eventually come out into our life. Salvation isn't a matter of the head. You can't think your way into heaven. Salvation isn't a matter of your hands. You can't work your way into heaven. It's a matter of the heart. God is offering you salvation as a free gift, but it's not cheap, my friend. No, it actually costs Jesus Christ everything. In John chapter 19, we read that as Jesus was dying on the cross, a Roman soldier pierced his side with a spear, and water and blood flowed out from the wound. That indicated that Jesus died of a broken heart. His, his heart, his little heart had burst. He died of a broken heart so that we can have a new heart. The old hymn says, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Here's a cute little poem that uh, explains a little bit of what I'm trying to say this morning. Mary had a little pig. Got you. Mary had a little pig whose skin was white as snow. This is after Mary washed her pig, which was often, you must know. And Mary had an awful time to keep her piggy clean, for he really was the dirtiest pig that you ever have ever seen. She'd wash him and she'd scrub him and he would squirm and squeal as if he tried to let her know that clean was just not his deal. And then outside in his backyard, he'd scheme from morn to night, then he'd sneak away from home and lose himself from sight. And then when Mary found him, he'd be dirtier than before. So she would grab the soap and brush and clean her pig some more. Poor Mary thought and wondered much what she could ever do till she figured out a plan, and this she carried through. She took her pig to a local vet who put the pig to sleep. He took the pig's heart right out, but not, of course, to keep. And then he took a dying lamb and took his heart out too and put it in the little pig before the piggy knew. When little piggy did awake, he had no more desire to wallow in the mud again or ever in the mire. And try as hard as he could think, he never understood how such a dirty pig as him could ever be so good. And so you see, dear friend of mine, you need a new heart too.
just like the little piggy did. The old will never do. So if you want a brand new heart, well, here is what you do. Just give your heart to the Lamb of God, and He'll give His heart to you. That's what we need. Oh, no, we need reform. We need better laws. Uh, no, Jesus is saying more laws don't make the difference. We need a new heart. And Jesus died on the cross in order to give us a new heart. And if you're here today and you've never been saved, you've never received a new heart, today is the day, my friend. October 24th, 2021, let this be the day of salvation for you. And so we see the heart of man's problem is always a problem with man's heart. But then notice, secondly here, God cares most about the condition of our heart. It's obvious here is he's going away, he, he's going through this, this dialogue with the, not dialogue, he blasts these Pharisees. And he said, your heart is far from me. The externals, they may be there. You may have checked all the boxes, but your heart is far from me. 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse number 7, as, as Samuel is looking at Eliab to be possibly the next king of Israel, and Eliab certainly looked like he could be because all the external things were there. I mean, he was good-looking, he was tall, he was a natural leader. And Samuel said, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. And God said, no, and here's what he said. Lord said unto Samuel, look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. Man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. God cares more about the condition of our heart than he does on anything else in our life. Say, well, I care about what people think of me. I care about my looks. I care about my appearance. I care about my reputation. God cares most about our heart. How's your heart today? You all look great to me. God can see past the facade. What is the condition of your heart? You may appear beautiful on the outside, but what's inside? That's what matters the most, my friend. God cares most about the condition of our heart. The Bible does speak about our actions. It does speak about our outward appearance. But the overwhelming emphasis in the scriptures is on the condition of our heart. God cares most about the condition of our heart. Thirdly, we see here that standards do not equal spirituality. These Pharisees, they had it all together. They were following all the rules that they had made themselves. They were following all these traditions, and they checked all the boxes. And they thought they were pretty spiritual because they did. And they walked around not just thinking they were spiritual, but that anybody else who didn't match up to them was equal, was automatically unspiritual. And so they come to these disciples and they say, Ah, oh, there, they're not following one of our traditions. Ah, oh, they must be unspiritual. No. Standards do not automatically equal spirituality. Can I give you a personal, transparent illustration? I attended Bible college for four years. Talk about rules and regulations. Bible college, you can relate, my friend. Brother Michael is in Bible college right now. And the handbook, I remember the first week of school. I, I went to public school all my life until I get to Bible college. And I was excited to you know, be in a Christian school for the first time and be around a bunch of Christians. And I was excited about it. And then the first week, they hand out the handbook, and I was like, can we do anything? I mean, do we have to get, like, a permission slip to breathe? I mean, that's kind of how I felt that first day or two. But I can attest to this, and, and I'm not proud to testify to this truth, but, but there were moments while I was in Bible college where I was checking off all the external boxes, dressed just right hair just right, 
Now my hair is always just right because it's not there. <laughs> supposed to have a short haircut when, you know, in college, and that, that was, now I would be, that would be an easy-peasy thing for me to do. Uh, but I, I, all the rules, you know, it, back in time and, and uh, not late for curfew and, and making the bed just right. But I am telling you, there were times where verse 6 was true in my life. I was honoring him with my lips, but my heart was far from the Lord. Standards do not equal spirituality, my friend. Uh, you can do all the external things, but God, God sees all past that. Okay, Standards do not equal spirituality. Let me balance it out with this last thought here. Fourthly here, standards based on the scriptures are healthy and helpful. There's two ditches to this. One ditch is, yeah, out with standards. They don't equal spirituality, so let's just throw them in the garbage and get rid of them. There's the other, like the Pharisees, who say, yes, we need to have all kinds of standards and all kinds of traditions that we all have to follow, and if you don't, then you're horrible. But then there's the other extreme where let's just not have any standards. Standards based on the scriptures are healthy and helpful. We do not throw out standards just because some take them too far and make them as important or more important than truth. Standards based on the scriptures, I'm going to say it again, are healthy and helpful. Nothing wrong with having godly, biblical-based standards in our lives. In fact, that's a healthy thing to have in our lives as believers. To get the scriptures and say, okay, the Bible says this, and okay, like, for instance, it doesn't have anything, it doesn't say, you know, thou shalt be gracious on Facebook. There's no verse in the Bible that says how you have, are to handle social media. There's principles in the Bible that we can apply then to social media and how we use it. And you can make a standard. Hey, I'm just, I'm just not going to you know, post anything with bad language, and that's your personal standard. Well, that's based on something here, but that doesn't mean that you have to go around and hold everybody to that same standard. Now, that's a good standard to have, and as we're talking about it right now, I think that's a good standard for everybody to have. Let's not post profanity on our Facebook pages. I think that's a reasonable thing to say as a believer. But when we make that, of course, the scriptures equal to the scriptures that we're in dangerous territory there. So we need to find that balance that, you know, I, I don't want to say middle of the road because that sounds kind of wishy-washy, but I, I think we need to make sure we're not on either ditch where we're not being legalistic about our standards and holding everybody else to the same standard that we have in our life. And if someone doesn't match up with that, then automatically they're a horrible carnal Christian. We don't need to be over here either and say, everybody who has a standard is automatically legalistic. And standards should be done away with altogether. I don't, I don't know that you can get either one of those from the scriptures. I think it's healthy and helpful to have godly, biblical-based standards in our life. And when we have the right stand and then we have the right spirit in which we stand. So let's desire to honor the Lord and please the Lord with our lives. We sang this morning, holy, holy, holy. Hey, if he's holy, remember we're called to be holy as he is holy. Remember that verse? That, that's going to require some practical uh, working that out in our life. Making some standards. Making some guidelines for my life. But I'm not going to go around and look down my nose at everybody else who doesn't have the same standards that I do. See, we need to have a gracious spirit towards others. So what I'm trying to say is let's strive to have the right stand with the right spirit. Let's develop godly standards for ourselves and a gracious spirit to others. And let's not allow ourselves to become critical of others and cause division in our church, and that could easily happen. Oh, you don't do it the way I do it, so 
know, one day maybe you'll mature like me. That's the wrong attitude. These Pharisees were called hypocrites for a reason. Let's not be hypocrites and uh, do all of our standards and then our heart is still far from the Lord. Let's make sure our heart is right with God. That's the emphasis of the passage. If you're here today and you need a new heart, the Lord is offering you one today. Would you take him up on it? Would you get saved? Would you call upon him? Would you believe on him for your salvation? Stop trying to fix your problems by trying harder. You need a new heart, and only Jesus can give you that one. Those of us who are saved, let's make sure we don't fall into either ditch. Let's make sure we're not Pharisees and looking down our nose at everybody and trying to find fault. When someone doesn't match up with our traditions, our standards, but let's also not think that just because somebody has standards in life, they're automatically legalistic either. Maybe they're trying to have a gracious spirit. And so with that, let's have prayer. Lord, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for this difficult passage, one that we need to look at, one that we need a healthy dose of in this day and age. Help us, Lord, not to find ourselves in either ditch, to find ourselves with a godly balance of endeavoring to live a holy pleasing life to you, but with a gracious spirit as well. Lord, if there's one here today that needs a new heart, they need a spiritual heart transplant, I pray they'd receive that today. I pray that they would believe on Jesus Christ and trust in him today for their salvation, be born again. And Lord, I pray that you give us wisdom to live this out in our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. As Miss Platt begins to play, if she can start playing right now, we're going to go ahead and I'm going to be quiet and let you have a time of prayer right there and time of decision. And then uh, we'll sing a song here in a moment before we're dismissed.